Salt Company, good evening. Good evening indeed. I'm Zach. That's about all you need to know about me. Happy Thanksgiving in advance. Tonight, we're just going to jump right in, guys. I'm, I'm all business tonight, so you better be ready. <laughs> tonight, we're going to continue going through our journey of the book of 2 Timothy in the Bible. So you can go ahead and flip there now as I'm kind of rambling on while uh, you know, I'm filling time for you to get there. But on the way, let me give you some interesting uh, context for you. 2 Timothy, to me, it's a very interesting book of the Bible. It's, it's uh, peculiar to me. And the reason why is because it's, a, it's an epistle, right? Like it, Paul, the apostle, wrote this. But unlike Philippians, unlike Ephesians, unlike Corinthians, which were all written to churches of believers, Timothy is just written to one guy. And to me, that just, it's, it's so odd because what are we supposed to do with a book that's, <laughs> of the Bible that's written to just one guy? And as I've just been kind of mulling and thinking this over, um, I really think that uh, this text tonight is, it's going to punch a little bit. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have some hands. It's going to be swinging. But if you guys will weather this um, sermon with me tonight, I think you're going to walk away with the sense of Paul to Timothy as kind of this older brother figure. So the, for those of you that don't know, Timothy was just like this guy that followed Paul around on like his, his missionary journeys. He was with him on his second and his third missionary journey. He accompanied Paul. He was with him in Ephesus. In fact, he ended up staying there for a number of years after Paul left, continuing his work, strengthening the church, teaching the gospel to them, all that good stuff. And that's the context we, we kind of find ourselves in 2 Timothy, because while he's preaching the gospel, while he's strengthening this church, he's, he's encountering some opposition from people. People who seem to be religious, people who seem to actually like talking about spiritual things and how to like live the right way, some of them might even claim to be Christians. But when Timothy looks at their lives, the testimony of like what they're doing and how they're acting and how they're behaving, it actually really contradicts what they're saying they're believing in. And so Paul, he's writing to Timothy in this context, and we're going to see things like adultery pop up, lying to one another, people charging like tons of money to come into people's houses and like preach a false gospel to them. But the thing that Paul is actually most like perturbed with, like disgusted at, isn't like these sins that people are doing. What's happening is these people are acting as if they are godly. They're acting as if they're righteous. That they have this outward appearance of being good people, living the good life, but inwardly they're actually still dead in their sins. And that's what Paul is discussed at. And that's why he's telling Timothy and us today, like, what is genuine Christianity? What is Christian power? What does that look like? How do Christians conduct themselves? But also, why does what we believe completely change the way we live? And that's what we're going to do tonight. That's where we're going. That's how we're going to do this. But I was trying to think of like an illustration to kind of conjure up what I'm actually talking about tonight. <laughs> I really struggled. So I'm going to throw some really bad ones at the wall, and we're going to see what sticks. Paul... He's describing these people that seem to be like really religious, but actually they're just still dead in their sins. And it's kind of like this. 
You go to the grocery, or not grocery stuff, you go Christmas shopping, right? It's different than groceries for some people, I guess. You're going shopping, you see like you're, at the, you're doing the window thing, you're kind of at the mall, you're traipsing around. Do people still go to the mall? Like, do you just buy everything on Amazon nowadays? Okay, yeah, mall, great, thanks. Okay, so you're at the mall, whether or not you're shopping there, sometimes you're there for Chick-fil-A, let's be real. Okay, so you see the presents, they're wrapped up, they're beautiful, whatever. If you were to go into that like, store and rip open their presents, you would find jack squat in that box, right? Like there wouldn't be anything there, there wouldn't be any reason for anything to be there. That's what these people are like. They have this really beautiful outward appearance, but when you look in their life, there's nothing inside. Think about this. Y'all ever eat an onion ring and it's like crispy, it looks crunchy, it's fresh out of the fryer, and you take a big old bite out of it and there's no onion inside? That's what these people are like. They're like all of the breading, the crustiness, the goodness of the breading, but they're actually lacking the actual substance of what makes an onion ring an onion ring and not just a bread ring. You know what I'm saying? It's like those, um, like when your friend handed you like a stick of gum and you're like, dude, thanks, I really needed that, you know, coffee breath, whatever. And you like grab the wrapper and it just kind of crumbles in your hands because it's actually empty and they like made you look really stupid because you thought that it actually had gum in it. No, you got pranked. That's what this is like. This is Olivia's, and this is really good. It's like when you were a kid, and you, you, like, you had those cereal boxes, and it was like, they had like those little CD-ROM games, you know what I'm saying? Like Freddy Fish's like, adventure, you'd like point and click and find the stuff or whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then get over it and get some. They're like 40 bucks on eBay now. Anyway, you like open the box, you're a little kid, you're excited for your little CD-ROM game, you want to play Freddy Fish 5 for some reason, and you open the box, and there's no game in there. It's just cereal. You don't want just cereal, you want cereal and the game. That's what these people are like. They claim to look like something that they actually aren't. What they're wearing is actually a disguise. They're like chameleons that just tend to blend into their environment, but they're not actually what they look like. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're starting in verse 1. Paul's talking to Timothy. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with their sins, led astray by various passions. They're always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Yanis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as with that of that two men. Okay, let's dig in a bit here. This list Paul is giving Timothy is pretty rattling, right? Like I kind of felt like I was describing the side effects of some medication you might take. Lovers of money, proud and you know, arrogant, abusive, you know, just, you know, like you just kind of hear the voice going on in the background. You're like, man, that's a lot of messed upness to deal with in just like one chunk of scripture. But we have to remember, Paul is talking specifically about people that claim to be godly, that claim to have a righteousness, but they have no real life in them. But... If we were to give like ourselves a fair estimation of like where we're at, 
what I found and what I bet you will find is that some of those things that these people are marked by are also what marks us in our daily lives, right? Like, we're not perfect. We're still sinners. We still need the daily grace of God at work in our lives. Paul is talking about a specific type of person, yet we still struggle with a lot of the same things. But let's go ahead and shelf that for now. Let's go to verse 5. Having the appearance of God in this, denying his power, avoid these people. This is what I meant by all my illustrations earlier, if, you're not, if, if you haven't gotten that by now. I hope you have. These people, they have the appearance of appearing like an onion ring, right? They look like an onion ring, but there's no onion ring in them. They appear to be godly. They're not. They, in fact, they deny the very power of God that they need to be saved. It's likely that the people who Paul is discussing here are people that say stuff like this. Well, the gospel may say this, and Jesus may have taught that, but I think blah, blah, blah. You don't need to be obedient to God. You can do whatever you want, especially if Jesus died for your sins. Basically, people, what they're doing here is they're propagating heresy, blasphemy, and they're saying this is kind of like this advanced sort of religion. Like Jesus, maybe he's like religion 101. But once you become spiritual enough, once you become aware enough, you can actually move beyond that to make your own righteousness for yourself. Jesus kind of starts you out, but you've got to finish the race. Or maybe there are people that say, I am a Christian, but Christianity actually has no like, bearing on how I live my life. It doesn't define how I live. It doesn't de- define how I talk. It doesn't define how I do my relationships. It doesn't change my approach to dating or marriage. Christianity is just something I do on Sundays and maybe Thursdays if I'm feeling extra good about it. And I think one thing that we can do to kind of bring this up to speed for us today, and a thing that I hear a lot, especially around the campus life, is, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person, right? Like, I don't follow any sort of, like, organized religion, but I'm spiritual. Like, they're saying, like, yeah, like, totally, I'm a spiritual being. Like, I know I have, like, a spiritual destination, but, like, religion ah, just seems kind of rudimentary to me. It doesn't seem like the way, right? Paul says very clearly, avoid these people. But why does he say that? Like, shouldn't we share the gospel with these people? Like, aren't they the ones that need it the most? But to qualify, like, what he's saying, he's, he's not just going to give us no explanation. Here's his explanation for him. He says, um, he's going to talk about Giannis and Yambres. And you're like, who is that? Great question, because it's not talked about pretty much anywhere in the Bible. But you guys know, like, the story of the Exodus, right? Like, you guys, have you seen, like, the Prince of Egypt? You know, like, deliver us. Like, oh, that intro just kills me every time. It's so good. Um, you know, Moses meeting God in the bush. Like, he gets called to lead Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh's like, nah. And he's like, okay, I'm going to part the sea and then kill all the Israel. You know, or not the Egyptians, not the Israel. You know, you get what I mean. You know the story. Well, the part where Moses is kind of doing, like, these miracles by the power of God, like, he throws his staff down and turns into a snake. There's these two Egyptian magicians Okay, that rhymed. Egyptian magicians. I, got so, I laughed so hard when I said that, when I was like practicing all this. But Egyptian magicians, their names are Giannis and Yambres, okay? They're like the ones that are kind of competing with Moses in the Exodus. Like Moses throws on his staff, turns into a snake. These guys are like kind of huddled together. They're trying to figure out like how to do the same. They're like, well, we got a staff, and they throw it down. It turns into a snake. 
Moses, he goes, he dips his staff into the Nile, it turns into blood, right? And they're like, well, we could do the same thing. And then, you know, they, they turn it. So all the time, like, Pharaoh's doubting Moses' testimony because these guys that don't claim God's power are able to do the same things. They look like the same power, right? But eventually what happens is the, the miracles that Moses is doing through the power of God, like, they can't keep up with it. Like, they're trying to, like, cause hail to rain down and locusts to swarm and all this crazy stuff. And then God eventually brings, like, this crazy plague and kills every firstborn child in Egypt. And they, like, can't compete. They can't contend at all. And Paul is saying we should avoid people like that, like people that try to propagate false religion because their end is the very same of those two men. Eventually, their illusion is going to catch up to them eventually their falsehood is going to be turned into truth and they're going to be exposed for who they actually are. And so Paul's not super concerned about their teaching as much as it is the outcome of their life. Because they're denying God's power, not only will their teaching not last, but they're also condemned. They stand condemned before God. And so for you note-takers out there, which I hope is most of you, one of the first ways to describe genuine Christian power is through obedience. Okay, bear with me for a second. I just went through like all this stuff talking about the Exodus and you're like, obedience? Like, <laughs> is that the answer? Here's what I mean. All of the lists that Paul is kind of giving Timothy at the beginning of chapter 3, it's like <laughs> a list of works, right? Like, these people do this sort of thing, and they think this sort of way, and they are these sorts of people, and they're, you know, rude, and they disobey their parents, all bad, 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 bad people. Here's what he actually means by that. These people don't obey God. They claim to have religion, they claim to have spirituality, but they don't actually obey what God has to say for their lives. That's obedience. And so, I kind of want to break it down by this. Here's what I mean by obedience. Are you working with God or are you working against him? Do you listen to God or do you ignore what he has to say? Do you obey what he says or do you not have to? Are you infatuated with God's commands towards us like all the psalmists seem to be for some reason or do you think of them as burdensome? Obedience is literally just doing what someone else tells you to do. <laughs> like you can't really obey yourself like, you have to obey what other people tell you to do. Otherwise, you just do what you want. Obedience. And this applies to us, certainly, like in our own lives and what we do with ourselves and how we, you know, conduct ourselves or whatever. But it also really, really applies to who we follow. It applies to who we follow. Who we listen to, it matters. Who we take in sermons from, who we listen to podcasts from, that all matters because when we're following someone, like on social media or uh, on, on a sermon series or whatever, we're basically saying, I want more of you in my life. Like a more dramatic way to say that is like, I want to be more like you. Like I want more of your cat memes or I, like, I want more of your, your intellect for, through podcasts. I like, want more of like you having interesting conversations with people. I want more of you in my life. And so it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, guys, that when we start following people that don't actually love God, that one day we won't, we will end up like them, right? Like, that, <laughs> everyone who you follow in life is basically saying, I want to be like that when I'm that old, 
you know? And so if we don't follow people that have a regard for God's commands and his power, we will end, like, end up becoming people that don't regard his power or his commands either. But Paul, he kind of contrasts this idea of like those people that we shouldn't follow with, with himself. <laughs> and that seems like super awkward and like super proud and arrogant, just like the people he's talking against. He even says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am imitating Christ. Okay, that's a pretty bold thing to say. Like, no one, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have the boldness to say that. Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's very declarative here. Follow me as I follow Christ. And it seems super arrogant, right? But let's hear him out in verses 10 through 14. He says, You, however, Timothy, unlike these other people, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to be at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul's basically just opening the text on his life, and he's saying, look at my life, Timothy. Be like it. <laughs> See my teaching, my conduct, my faith, all this stuff, and it sounds like me, 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 follow me, follow me, follow me. But like, let's look closely at what he starts and what he ends with here in this list. He starts with teaching, right? He says, hey, look at my teaching. And we know what Paul is actually teaching in all these churches because a lot of the New Testament is actually exactly that. And so let me go back to 1 Corinthians 2 for you guys. Verse 2, it says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's exactly what Paul taught almost every time he went to a church. Or we can look again in the book of Ephesians, which is the church that Timothy, you know, he's ministering to in this time. Paul wrote a letter to them as well, and he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Paul doesn't teach anything except Christ and him crucified and him risen again. And that's why he's so frustrated with people who claim that they have like the secret knowledge or like the secret way of life. He's saying, no, that's not life. And guys, if Salt Company ever becomes a place that fails to teach Jesus Christ and him crucified, don't come. It's not worth your time. True life is found in being rescued by God, being obedient to him and loyal to him. And this idea, it kind of correlates with the end of his list of qualities. He's saying, Timothy, you followed my teaching, right? That's what he kind of starts with. You followed my teaching, but you also followed my suffering, my suffering. 
And for like suffering, it's kind of like a hard word to like define. And so I'm going to lean on Elizabeth Elliott here. You guys know who Elizabeth Elliott is? She's a great author. I recommend any of her books that she's ever written ever. Here's what she says about suffering. Suffering is having something you want that you don't have. Sorry. (laughs) You want something that you don't have. Or you have something that you don't want. That's suffering. And she's like, yeah, it's it's kind of like a basic definition, but I think it covers everything, right? Like, if you want a girlfriend and you don't have a girlfriend, like, that's actually suffering in some ways. If you want a wife and you don't have a wife, that's suffering. If you have cancer but you don't want cancer, that's suffering. That's what suffering is. Suffering is the second way to discern whether or not you are living in genuine Christian power. He goes on to like list some of the places that he's experienced suffering, persecution, all this stuff, because of Jesus. But he's careful here not to give himself too much credit, right? He's like, hey, like I've kind of endured these things, but God's the one that actually rescued me. Like I, I was kind of patient, I was waiting on God, but God delivered me from these things. And to me, like, that's kind of crazy. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> that's kind of crazy. Because whenever I do something hard or like techni- technical or savvy, right, like change the oil in my car last week by myself, I did it, I did it. I'm like, man, look at me. Like, I got under that car. I lifted it up with a floor jack. I, put, I, I found the right bolt to undo, all the oil came out. You know, I had a pan, it was fine, it's all clean. I got my gloves on. I changed the oil filter, which, you know, for new cars, you have to, like, get a new oil filter wrench. I, I didn't know that. I was used to working on old cars, so I had to go back to the, you know, auto parts store. You can never go to the auto parts store once. You have to go at least twice every time you're working on a car. You got to know that. But here's what I'm saying. You know, I did all the right stuff, and I got all of it done. It was an inconvenient, kind of a waste of my time, I felt like, but, you know, got to save that money. So I'm looking at it. I'm like, I'm so great. I did this. I suffered through my oil change in my car. I gritted my teeth, I pulled up my bootstraps, I got it done. But Paul, he looks at his sufferings as a testimony of God's faithfulness in his life. He even goes on to say in verse 12, Indeed, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when I think about that, I'm like, I don't know if I want that. Like, honestly, I'm not sure... (laughs) if I want to be persecuted in my faith because of Christ. And I think the reason that we often are hesitant to willingly suffer or be persecuted for our faith, guys, I think some of it's, yeah, like we're disobedient in our flesh, for sure. But it's also because we fail to see suffering the way Paul does. And the reason why we don't is because Paul, he's living by God's promises and God's promises alone, and we don't. Because for Paul, every time he's suffering or being persecuted, he probably remembers, like in Romans 8, that his afflictions, light and momentary, are preparing for him an eternal weight of glory that's beyond comprehension. It's like not even worth comparing. Paul understands that Jesus' life was one of suffering and persecution, and if Paul is to live like Christ, then he understands that he will be persecuted and he will suffer as well. Talking about if you want to follow people, that means you've got to be looking more like him, right? Jesus' life was full of suffering, full of persecution and execution. 
And this idea of persecution, it's kind of strange to us, right? Like, we're Americans, we're in Iowa. Um, we don't, like, really face open persecution for our faith, right? We have, like, microcosms of it. Like, we try to share our faith with our parents, and maybe it doesn't go well, or, like, with our friends, and it doesn't go well, or, you know, things like that. But, like, we won't have to, like, throw our lives on the line for Christ at some point in our life. And I think that's okay. <laughs> like, you don't have to feel, like, unnecessary guilt about that, right? Because, like, God is sovereign, and he's put you all here in this moment and in this time for a very specific reason, and that's okay that we, we don't have to face, like, death for following Christ, right? That's actually a huge blessing. But Paul is saying, if you have to choose between persecution or disobedience, you know what you have to choose as a believer. Disobedience cannot be the outcome of your life if you truly love Christ. Persecution isn't something that you look for in your life, but it is something that you tend to welcome when it happens to come. We need to see suffering the way Paul does. And we got to remember, guys, like, he's writing this letter to Timothy, right? He's trying to help him, like, pastor this church while he's not there. But, like, this is one of the last letters that Paul had ever written because he was on his way to be executed for his own faith. And on the way to, like, his deathbed, he's encouraging Timothy, like, don't give up. You're, you're suffering. It's worth it. It's not working against you. It's working for you. You can make it to the end. You can, you can persevere as I've persevered. It's, it's not a waste of your time. It's the best thing you can do with your life. And so then Paul moves on from suffering as a means to experience Christian power and then he turns towards Scripture, or like the Bible, the, you know, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And he starts in verse 15. He's like, learn everything that you've learned from me and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, just a fancy way of saying Scripture or the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so on the verge of his death, Paul is telling Timothy, hey, obey God, suffer well, use your Bible. Don't miss out on your Bible. This book, it has everything you need to follow Jesus. Everything you need for salvation is in this book. Every mystery that angels have longed to look for since God created everything are in this book. This is the Bible. It's inerrant. It means that it has no error in it whatsoever. It's as perfect as anything could be. Its author is God. I don't think God would waste ink on words we don't need to hear. Its words have authority over our lives and our lifestyles. It's useful. It teaches us how to be righteous so that we would be complete and ready for every good work that God has prepared for us before the foundations of the earth were even created. This book matters, guys. Does it matter to you? When you're suffering or when you're sad, when you're persecuted, when you're lonely, when you're anxious or when you're angry, do you run towards this Bible? Or do you run towards this? Do you run towards your Bible or do you run towards your friends and your family? With both of which, you know, they're, they're totally fine. 
but do they have more sway in your life than this book does? This book was written by God out of his very breath so that you might have life and have it abundantly, not so that it could sit on your shelf and collect dust. You guys are going on break soon, right? <laughs> Thanksgiving coming up in a week. It's a good thing. It's good news. Some of you are already acting like you're on break. <laughs> Some of you might already be. Some of you won't be in Iowa City for a really long time. January. Ouch. Going to miss you guys. Where will you find your hope and satisfaction this winter? What will be your source of joy? My prayer for you guys is that your joy would be found in these pages and nothing else. Yes, have joy in your family. Yes, have joy in your friends. But let your satisfaction come from this book and what it has to say about your life and what God has to say about you above everything else. This book matters. It's good to give us knowledge, but Paul goes on. It's not good just to give us knowledge. It's also good to give us a purpose and a hope to cling to. Look with me in the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is able to judge the living and judge the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. That's terrifying. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and complete teaching. For the time is coming where people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. The last way Paul tells Timothy, (laughs) Timothy to live a genuine Christian life, a genuine Christian power to have, he says, remember your purpose. Remember your purpose. Preach the word. Be ready when you should be. Be ready even when you shouldn't be. Teach people with patience. Why? Because he's saying people aren't going to be able to endure what we're going to tell them. They don't want to hear a gospel about a God coming down from earth for you. They want to hear about how they can fix themselves, how they can be righteous, how they could have their own authority, how they could be the masters of their life. We're coming with a very, very, very controversial news. We're saying you want to fix your life? You can't, but I know someone who can. People aren't naturally drawn to that, guys, and that's okay. That's the way it's been intended to be. The only reason why any of you are believers is because God made you one, not because you found him. He made you a believer. He has authority in your life. People won't be able to stand what we're going to teach them. No, they just want to be able to do what they want to do, and they don't want to obey God. And this list that he's giving, like, it's, it's contrasting kind of like his beginning of chapter 3, right? He's like, all these people, they're doing these bad things, they're drunk, you know, they're, they're filling out their passions. But he's telling Timothy, be sober, endure suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. He's basically saying, like, hey, be sober-minded, not only physically, like, don't get drunk, that's bad, right? But also, don't be filled up with worldly pleasure. Be filled up with godly pleasure, don't look for this world to satisfy the deepest longings in your, in your soul. It can't, but God can. And he tells them to preach the word, you know, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Listen, 
the most ethical thing you could ever do for another human being, the most ethical thing is tell them the gospel with complete patience and complete love and complete teaching. That is actually the most ethical thing you can do for someone. Why? Because if we truly believe that the gospel is true and that you can go to heaven forever with a God who loves you and that sent his son to die for you, why wouldn't we share that news? What kind of hatred do we have to have in our hearts not to tell people that? That there's an opportunity for them to experience salvation that doesn't require work, but it requires faith. Complete patience, complete teaching. You know, I said some of you guys are going home, right? Some of you are going home to unbelieving families. I'm going home to some members of my family who don't believe. Here's what I'm saying to us. Share the gospel with them. Share the gospel with them. Be patient. Have complete love and share the whole gospel with them. Fulfill your ministry. Listen, I want, I want to encourage you with this as kind of like my final, final thought. I don't want you to be sad. The only reason you guys are still here on the planet, on earth, alive, it's for two reasons. It's either because God is waiting for you to accept the gospel and become a Christian. Like in Peter, uh, I can't remember if it's first or second Peter, but he's like, God isn't slow as some would count slow, but like he's actually waiting patiently for everybody to come to repentance. In the book of Ezekiel, it says, God doesn't delight in the destruction of the wicked. He's not out to get you. He's not waiting to destroy you. He's waiting for you to come to him. He's waiting for you to hear the gospel and accept it. So it's either that, that you need to become a Christian, or it's because you have work to do. It's because what God has planned for your life hasn't been finished yet. There's still people for you to preach the gospel to. There's still a life for you to show Jesus to people. And when you fulfill your ministry at the right time, God will take you to him the one you've been working for your whole life, and you'll see him face to face. And you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have a job to do, Christian. But there's also a third group of people in the room. Some of you that might have put on the guise of Christianity. You might have the appearance of godliness, but you deny its power. Maybe you said, once I am a Christian, or maybe I am Catholic, or maybe I have a faith, or I believe in God somewhere, somewhere, some way, somehow. But you don't actually live like it. Your faith, maybe it's in your head, but it's not in your heart. It's not changing the way you live your life. It's not propelling you to love others. It's not propelling you to know more about God. It's not propelling you to obey him more. And what I have to say to you guys that might be in the room, that's you tonight. Number one, welcome. I'm glad you're here. But number two, repent. Stop acting and thinking that simply calling yourself a Christian or a Catholic or religious, that you're going to be saved. You won't be. God will not be mocked by cheap, fake religion. Turn to Christ, the one who died in your place, took all of your sin to the cross, was buried in a tomb, rose three days later, and said it is finished. 
that by believing in him, you might experience a true new life, one that doesn't revolve around having a guise or an illusion, not, even, not only to other people, but also to yourself. That you could have a purpose that endures not for the next 40 years of your career, but for the next 40 million years as you're sitting in heaven someday with the people that you're going to tell the gospel and the people that did tell the gospel to the person that told the gospel to the person that told the gospel to you. I'm saying, guys, have a bigger perspective for your life. Don't just take Jesus' advice and turn away from him. Listen to what he has to say and follow him. Stop acting religious, but accept Christ. And then I think you're going to become like the psalmist in in Psalm 32 that says this. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Guys, there's a power to live through and live by in this life, one that doesn't revolve around you, but revolves around God. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead can actually be yours tonight. And so I hope that you pray with me for the people in the room that have yet to experience that faith. Go ahead and pray. Yeah, Father, your word is magnificent. It's full of splendor and awe and wonder. And God, as I look at this text and as I look at these people, um, I know that it's a tough word to accept. It's a tough word to, to hear. But God, I hope that you're tender to everyone in this moment, that people that came, that are Christians, that they would feel encouraged, that there's still a purpose for them here. God, that you're not wasting their time, you're not wasting their year, even though it sure feels like it at times. God, you're not, you're not idle, you're not just looking down from heaven, wishing we would be better people and wishing that we would have our lives together more, but you're actually um, waiting patiently that we would come to experience you truly for who you are as a, as a father that sent his one and only son to die on a cross in a criminal's death that he didn't deserve so that we could have life. God, I hope there's a resurrection in the room tonight, one that they could actually go next weekend and have something worth giving thanks to a holy God that came from heaven down to earth, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, and rose three days later for them, and that your love would just fill this place as we sing out your praises, God. You are worthy to be praised. You are high and lifted up. You are on the throne of our lives. God, help us use your word this holiday season. Help us to cling to it as if it's the very words of life itself like you say it is. Let Salt Company be a place that never preaches anything but Christ and him crucified.